three, four years, as you well know, because we have just walked through this process, and in some ways we're still walking through this process, the United States of America elects a president near the end of the calendar year. Then on the following January 20th, as will be true this year as well, an inauguration ceremony is held in Washington. There are a, a number of formal events or protocols that are typically followed at the inauguration ceremony. First, the outgoing president accompanies the president-elect to the Capitol for the swearing-in. Upon their arrival at the Capitol, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides over the swearing-in of the new president. The president then makes an inaugural address, marking the beginning of a new presidential era, followed by the honorary departure of the outgoing president demonstrating a peaceful transfer of power. Then in the president's room just off the the Senate chamber in the U.S. Capitol, a signing ceremony is held where the first actions of the new president are enacted. This is followed by an inaugural luncheon. And finally, the president and vice president make their way to the east front steps of the Capitol for a formal pass and review, where the new commander-in-chief looks over a contingent of military troops before leading a procession down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House. All of this formality, that is all of the formality of the, the protocols and the pomp, are designed as a public display of the fact that a new administration is now in place to lead the people of our nation going forward. In today's passage, we are looking at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost marks the honorary departure of the Old Covenant and the peaceful transfer of power to the new covenant. Peter's message amounts to the inaugural address marking the arrival of a new incoming administration that is a public announcement signifying that a new administration or a new ministry that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit is now officially in place to lead the people of God going forward. Our passage is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. Hear then the word of our glorious God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. That is, he addressed those who were present. All of the people heard the rushing of the wind. All of the people heard people speaking in tongues not their own. Some of them were perplexed, asking, what does this mean? Others of them began to mock the followers of Jesus, saying, they're filled with new wine. So Peter stands up and lifts up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, 
as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Lord, lead us now. Help us, please, we ask. The Spirit who gives life. The Spirit who changes hearts. Spirit, would you now do a work among us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is difficult to overemphasize 
the significance of what is happening in today's passage. So let's summarize it like this. Peter's sermon marks the end of an entire era of redemptive history. And it inaugurates a new age of ministry which continues to this very day. Indeed, to the hearing of my voice at this very moment. Peter's sermon is so significant that it marks the end of an entire era of redemptive history and inaugurates a new age of ministry which continues to this very day. For an entire epoch, for an entire historical time period from at least at least Moses until Pentecost, the worship of God and the ministry of God's people looked one particular way. From Peter's sermon here, from Peter's sermon on, everything changes. Brandon Crow describes Acts as both a transitional book describing the before and after effect of non-repeatable events, and he describes it as a programmatic book. That is, providing guidance for the church going forward. And we've already talked about the idea that one of the more important things that we'll have to do as we walk through Acts is to discern the difference between those two things. In this case, what is fascinating is that Peter's sermon is an example of both. So what is it, as you just heard it read, what is it that stands out? to you about Peter's sermon. The content of Peter's sermon is important because it explains the most significant transitional moment in church history. His sermon sets an example for the future ministry of the church by expositing the scriptures in a remarkably Christ-centered way. And in this way, he sets an example for all preachers to follow. But how does he do it? Peter's sermon is a proclamation focusing on three Old Testament texts or prophecies. Joel chapter 2 Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Psalm 110 being the most quoted Old Testament verse found in the New Testament. Peter shows that these prophecies are fulfilled by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, re- resulting in the ultimate blessing of God, namely the pouring forth, namely the pouring forth of the power and of the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at how Peter does this, beginning with Joel. Have you ever been mocked for your faith? Have you ever been in a situation where doing something that you were prompted by the Holy Spirit to do ended up with others making fun of you? 
mocking what you were doing? If so, you are in very good company. Now, as we begin to look at Peter's sermon, I, to be transparent about it, I'm not sure whether to laugh or to cry as I read the opening words of Peter's sermon. Because arguably, the greatest sermon ever preached by anyone not named Jesus begins with a defense of the fact that he's not drunk. Now, that would definitely liven things up here in the morning if I, if I opened by, by saying, I just want you all to know, I'm not drunk. And yet, hear the word of God. That may, to lead, that may lead to more questions than answers, however, if I, if I did that. Now, verses 14 and 15. The others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Peter's sermon in the first place is an announcement or a proclamation of good news. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Peter says. It's fascinating that about, about 25% of the entire book of Acts is just describing sermons or speeches given by Peter, given by Stephen, and given by Paul later in the book. Peter's sermon here is the first of these and sets the trajectory for ministry in the New Testament. That is, public declarations focused on proclaiming the good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ. So don't ever forget that as, as personal as our worship services often feel, they are nonetheless public witnesses to the saving work of Jesus Christ. When I or one of the other men stand here and proclaim the good news of Jesus, this is a public declaration. It is open to all of the public. Indeed, we would love if all of the public came in to hear the good news about Jesus. We're live streaming this service at this very moment. Therefore, it is wide open to the public to hear a public declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here, Peter says, look, it's nine o'clock in the morning. These people are not drunk. That's ridiculous. But let me tell you what is happening. And he quotes from the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
We have now entered a time period, according to these words, called the last days, where the Spirit of God is poured out on all people, enabling them to prophesy, to be more specific, all people who express faith in Jesus. The outpouring of the Spirit means that the day of salvation and the day of judgment foretold by the prophets has now come. It has been inaugurated. Now, in context, perhaps most narrowly, this incredible, incredible event means that all people share in the gathering of the harvest. That is, all people who have expressed faith in Jesus. All followers of Jesus share in the gathering of the harvest, in the separating of the wheat from the chaff. Recall that this is the context of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, associated with the first fruits of the wheat harvest, as, as Mitchell explained to us last week. This specific outpouring means that all people who are followers of Jesus share in spirit-led proclamation. Now, this was the longing of Moses 1,500 years before Pentecost. You might remember that Moses was under a heavy burden of leadership, so the Lord poured out the Spirit on 70 elders to aid Moses in ministry. Only 68 of them were with Moses. Two remained back at the camp, and yet they also began to prophesy. Well, this troubled Joshua, and he came to Moses and said, this isn't good, because I'm concerned that they might usurp your authority if people see that God is with them. <laughs> And Moses' Moses' response to Joshua is this. He says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would pour out his spirit on them. This is the heart of the mediator of the people of God. And this is the heart of our mediator today. If you are not a believer in Jesus, know that God's plan for you, God's plan for the world, involves the gift of salvation and the pouring out of the Spirit on anyone and on everyone who will repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus. As we see and as we will see in our passage No act of wickedness makes you irredeemable. Peter is literally confronting people to their faces who had literally called for God's son to be executed probably not more than a month and a half prior to this. Therefore, no fancy argumentation is needed. The proclamation is clear and simple. If you see the glory of Jesus revealed in his word, repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for the salvation of your soul. Behold, now, even this moment is the accepted time. Behold, today, today is the day of salvation. The truth is that as worthy as every sin is of 
of judgment and of condemnation, no matter how prolific your sin is, Jesus is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. Come to Jesus and be saved. If you are a believer in Jesus already, God has filled you with his spirit, not merely to delight in the glorious salvation that he has provided for you, but also to declare the gospel and to disciple others and to demonstrate the love that the Father has for those who need it, namely every person alive. This calling is true for you no matter, no matter how long you have known Jesus and no matter how much you know about Jesus. If you know enough to have professed faith in Jesus, you know enough to share your faith in Jesus with someone else. So I'm a, I'm a hundred percent with Moses on this one. Would that God's spirit would be poured out on all people. Oh, that the harvest might come in. Now, after explaining this unusual event at Pentecost as, as the fulfillment of prophecy, of the promises of God, Peter now specifically points to Jesus. He describes Jesus as a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, to attest to something means to, to provide clear evidence of the validity of something or to witness to the veracity or to the truth of something or to or to formally certify that something is, in fact, true. But the most stunning aspect of this statement of Peter may not even be that the authority and message of Jesus was authenticated by the incredible miracles that he performed, as awesome as that is. We would expect that God's servant submitted to him could perform astounding miracles. And indeed, it does validate the message of Jesus. But the most stunning aspect of what Peter says to the people right in front of him is, you yourselves know this. Just imagine being there when Peter said this to the people. I picture it playing out with him saying something like, look, I'm not talking about some made-up legend from the past. I'm not embellishing about some guy that lives in a remote land. You were there. You know who I'm talking about. Jesus of Nazareth. You saw his ministry with your own, with your own eyes. You've seen the guy whose blind eyes Jesus opened. You've talked to the man who was formerly mute. You've walked next to the brother who used to be paralyzed. You 
You brought your family members to Jesus. And he healed them all. In fact, for some of you, that happened in my house. You know this. You saw him. You heard him. You talked to him. Forget, forget me. Forget us for a second. You yourselves are witnesses to this ministry. Talk about an opportunity for the ultimate pastoral stare down. This Jesus, Peter continues, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, Hakim, you, Shimron, you, Jaleel, you crucified and killed Jesus. Sure, it may have happened from the hands of lawless men. Yes, the Roman soldiers swung the whips and drove in the nails. But I'm telling you, you killed Jesus. I guarantee they were this close from one another. You might deny it, but you, you asked for Barabbas to be set free. You went along with the Pharisees. You know it, and I know it. We were both there. Pilate was ready to let him go. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man, but you yourselves, you cried, crucify him. This is the Jesus I'm talking about. Pilate said, there's nothing wrong with him. And you said, may his blood be on us. And on our children, you, you said that about Jesus. So we're clear. Can you imagine the weight of conviction in that moment as Peter shared these words? But God's word is just as powerful. This word is just as powerful. So, so where are you experiencing conviction, even at this moment, about your fidelity to Jesus? As the Holy Spirit ministers the very same word of God in this moment. Would we have said anything different? The preaching of the word is often a direct confrontation of our hearts. It's a direct confrontation of our thoughts. It's a direct confrontation of our actions. And the confrontation is with the beauty and the purity and the truth of God's word and in the pristine character of Jesus Christ. Sometimes one of the most powerful ways to witness is simply to cling to the truth. 
and not move away from it so that the starkness of its implications just stare you in the face. Despite the death of Jesus being the plan of God, according to chapter 2 and verse 23, a theme that will be picked up again in chapter 4, so we'll cover it in more detail there. Despite the death of Jesus being the plan of God, the emphasis of Peter here is clearly on the moral culpability of those to whom he is speaking. His words are simple, and his words are clear, and his words are powerful. In chapter 2 and verse 24, a shift happens, which, which sets up the next Old Testament reference in Psalm 16, verse 24. You, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is powerful imagery drawn from Psalm 18 and verses 4 and 5. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. The imagery is of a person sinking to the, to the bottom of the sea whose legs become entangled by the plants and the vines at the bottom of the seafloor, and death literally wraps around the person and pulls them in until there is no hope of escape, until life and breath is extinguished. But in this case, death's victory was short-lived. For three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave, conquering sin and death forever. I saw the Lord always before me, David prophesied, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter interprets these words of David as a prophetic reference to the resurrection. For though Jesus Died, he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his holy body experience the corruption of decay. Rather, uh, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So here he goes again with the, of this we are all witnesses. This time he's talking about the resurrection. How incredible is that? Both the crucifixion and the resurrection occurred publicly. The whole point of crucifixion is that it is a public 
disgracing of the person who is being crucified. It serves as a warning to anyone else who will cross, dare to cross the state that you can expect the same treatment if you come against us. The resurrection was just as public. The raising of Jesus from the dead was just as public as his execution or his crucifixion. Jesus appeared to many, including more than 500 at one time. At least some of those hearing Peter preach at this moment witnessed the risen Christ who was raised from the dead. I think that's the clear implication of what he is saying here. The grave could not hold Jesus because death is a result of the curse of sin. Though Jesus died as a substitute for sin, he himself had never sinned, so the grave could make no claim on him. In this sense, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus in the grave because he had never done anything to merit the curse of death. Oh, is that good news for us? Therefore, God raised Jesus from the dead and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of the Father, verse 33 And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, Peter is connecting the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. The people Peter is addressing had witnessed the work of God through Jesus and are now witnessing the work of God through the Spirit given by Jesus from the Father. And he says, as you yourselves know, as you yourselves are seeing and as you yourselves are hearing. A moment ago, we were talking about the areas where God may have been bringing conviction for sin after Peter is preaching the gospel to some people whom he knew and others undoubtedly that he didn't. Where is conviction coming to your heart, Joe? Kevin? How personal and powerful is this preaching? But another ministry of the Holy Spirit Oh, the most powerful and beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus, John 16, 14. So in what ways is the Spirit now comforting your soul? In what ways is the Spirit encouraging your soul by seeing the glory of Jesus with increased clarity as we hear Peter describe his life and death and resurrection and ascension And the implication of that, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Be encouraged as you consider that your faith is rooted and grounded in historical reality. 
Peter was preaching this in real time. He couldn't have made it any clearer. You know this, you saw this, you're seeing this, you're hearing this. The beauty of our faith being grounded in historical reality for us is this. People like you and people like me saw with their own eyes what Jesus did. People like you and people like me saw with their own eyes that Jesus suffered and died. People like you and people like me saw with their own eyes that upon the death of Jesus, the sky turned black and the earth shook and the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. They saw it and they heard it. They experienced it in real time in history. And people like you and me saw with their own eyes that three days later, the tomb was in fact empty. People like you and me saw with their own eyes that Jesus was alive. People like you and me saw with their own eyes and at least in one instance touched with their own hands the wounds of Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. People like you and people like me saw Jesus ascend into the glory of heaven in a cloud. People like you and me saw and heard the Spirit poured out on many people, and very normal people like you and me began witnessing, testifying to the truth of all they had seen and heard about the greatness of the glory of Jesus. And normal, average, everyday people like you and me, filled with the Holy Spirit, took the time to write these things down. So normal, everyday people like you and me could hear these realities and believe the faithful testimony about Jesus as an accurate record of history itself. Praise be to God for his mercy and grace to preserve this record. May the Spirit of God encourage you with that reality this morning. Seth, and Matt, Kristen, and Lois. How powerful and how personal is the word of God. So Peter's been testifying that Jesus is the Christ to ensure his hearers also understand that Jesus is not just the Christ, just, just the Christ. <laughs> To ensure that his hearers also understand that Jesus is not just the Christ, but at the same time, the Lord of glory. Peter quotes from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's thrilling about this is that Peter here is answering the riddle that Jesus had proposed earlier back in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 20, when Jesus was talking with a group known as the Sadducees. What's distinctive about the Sadducees as religious leaders is that they deny the resurrection and therefore would deny the ascension. In this conversation, Jesus asked the Sadducees, how can people say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself, in the book of 
Psalms says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? No answer. No answer because the key to understanding this question is a direct rebuke to the Sadducees because the answer rests on two things. The resurrection being true and the ascension actually happening, both of which they deny. Because Jesus is David's descendant, he can rightly be referred to as his son. Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, unlike David, Peter points out, and because Jesus ascended into glory to sit on the throne of heaven, unlike David, though Jesus is a son of David, he is therefore proven to be the Lord of glory and therefore, by extension, David's Lord as well. The uncomfortable place that Peter leaves his hearers as if this whole sermon wouldn't have been uncomfortable enough, is with this statement. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. I checked. There's no like uplifting story at the end of the sermon. No joke at the end. So the people don't feel bad about the weight of the guilt of their sin for crucifying Jesus. It just ends. But there's beauty in the uncomfortableness. There's beauty here because to be clearly confronted by reality is fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. And as we will hear next week, in their response, they knew they needed help because they were cut to the heart. So many cried out to Jesus for salvation and praise God. Three Thousand souls were added to their number that day. What about you if you're still sitting on the fence about whether or not you need to come to Jesus for the salvation of your soul? I implore you to get off the fence so that today, today, you could repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and he would become your Lord and your Christ. So Peter's sermon marks the end of an entire era of redemptive history and inaugurates a new age of ministry 
which continues to this day, public, Christ-centered declarations of the good news of the gospel. And we still currently live in this new era, which is why I'm just following Peter's example. We live in an era where we serve as witnesses to the truth as it is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, fruit of the harvest is often brought forth. So may God bring forth fruit even this very morning by the power of the Spirit as we respond to the proclamation of truth from God's Word. Would you pray with me and ask God's Spirit to move among us now? Father, please help us. Spirit of the living God, we are as dependent upon you at this moment as those who heard Peter preaching on that first Pentecost morning. We need your spirit to breathe life into our souls. We need your spirit to refresh our souls. We need your spirit to help us to see ourselves clearly and to help us to see you clearly and to help us to see the reality of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. And I pray that 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 reality would set our hearts to sing for joy this morning. Led by you, most Holy Spirit of God. Would you minister to us now, we ask. In the blessed name of Jesus, amen.